0: from PRX.
1: You. You. D. 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 O. You. E. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio.
0: 360 with Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson.
1: Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio
0: in my car. So
1: don't be sniffy about I'm not Penn. being sniffy. No, I think I you mean,
0: No, no. You've
2: got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over I mean, there? Uh, Today on the show, I'm playing some of his guitar parts not knowing he's a Native American musician. Live your life off of when is already inside of you.
3: No, nudity is much more like a concern.
4: Keep listening. Stay right. Don't go anywhere. Stay safe.
1: That's Jimi Hendrix, of course. He is a late 60s rock and roll pioneer and African-American. But what people tend to overlook about Jimi Hendrix is that he also strongly identified as Cherokee. Being part Native was very meaningful to my grandmother. That's Janie Hendrix, Jimi's sister. She talked about that a lot and really instilled that in all of us, but especially Jimi. It's really no wonder that the contributions of Native Americans to rock have gone unrecognized. After all, it is always obvious from some guitarist or drummer's appearance that he's Chippewa, and some musicians back in the day worried about discrimination did not exactly advertise their ancestry. But it turns out that, yes, Native American rock musicians have been influential, musically and otherwise. That influence was the subject of an exhibit at the Smithsonian a few years ago, and is now the subject of a really illuminating documentary called Rumble, The Indians Who Rocked the World. The film was produced by Stevie Salas, a guitar player who has performed all over the world for many years with Rod Stewart, Mick Jagger, George Clinton, and lots more. And he is Apache. Stevie Salas, welcome to Studio 360. Thanks. This is such an interesting film. Uh, I, I, I learned so much. It was also so entertaining to see all the clips of everybody. Um, h- how long has this been in the works? And and the idea sprang from where, how?
2: Well, really, it, it, you know, it's been in the works for most of my life. But what happened was, first, it was just curiosity. I, I, I grew up on the beach in San Diego. My My father left Wyoming, and my mother's family had left New Mexico and... And I never really saw myself as different. Uh, and I moved to L.A. in 1985 after high school. And I, I got this huge gig playing with Rod Stewart. But I would notice that there's just not too many people that look like me. I'd be on tour and I'd be in this, I was in this massive band, you know, playing, you know, five nights at Madison Square Gardens or whatever. And I, but I just didn't see anybody look like me. I just started getting curious. That's also, I started to do a little digging on the subject back then and where people were from.
1: I want to ask you about this film's director, who is an Anglo woman from Canada named uh, Catherine Bainbridge, all of whose work seems to be movies and TV shows about native people. So tell me about her. Why is that her, her professional
2: mission? Well, Well, it's because she's married to a Cree man from way up in Chisassabee near the Hudson Bay, and her children are native children. And she's really passionate about the history, and and, uh, she's really, really good with that stuff.
1: One great thing about this film is that there are obviously gigantic musicians like Jimi Hendrix that one has knew and has heard of, uh, but some people, a lot of people, a shockingly lot of people who were big deals whom I'd never heard of and were influential— like, let's start, for instance, with one of your favorites, a guy you mentioned, Link Ray. Here's maybe his most famous track. It was rumbled by link Ray and his Rayman in 1957 uh, so what do you what do you love about that
2: well you know what's really a trip about that is it's the song that first invented really the distorted power chord 1957 you know you you got this distorted thing coming out of the guitar um, that Pete Townsend is freaking out that Jeff Beck told me him and Jimmy page would Play air guitar to that song. And uh, so it influenced everybody that influenced me. And Slash talked a lot about that with me because Slash and I kind of came up together. And, uh, you know, all of us guys, we listened to Townsend, Dave Davies, we all listened to, to Jimmy Page, we all listened to Jeff Beck and Clapton. I mean, those are the guys. And then he says, I was wondering one day, who did they listen to? And he said, the more he dug, all, the name that always came up was Link Ray. And, and you realize that this is a massively unsung yes. person. Yeah. And no,
1: and you know, okay, we know Chuck Berry. We know, we know some of the farthest, deepest godfathers of rock and roll, but this to me, it's like, whoa, this is the moment rock is being invented. And this just sounds so uh, it's hard and, and 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 unwatered down and cool, and it just it was amazing to discover who did this.
2: And that song with no lyrics was banned from radio because it was inciting teen violence. And it's not even any lyrics, right? Right. So he's touching a nerve big time, right? So he he influences you know the the people that are the Mount Rushmore of rock, Townsend Page back. You know, he he gets the big guys out. Now they go on and Link Ray sort of goes off into obscurity to the public. So
1: did he kinda of, he influence you kind of second and third hand through the Jeff Becks and, and, and yes.
2: so forth? Yeah. Like most people my age, uh, we didn't even realize, you know, same with Jesse Davis. We didn't realize we were getting influenced by these guys because we had to go back and search who they influenced, and that's when we realized how important they were.
1: Um, Jesse Ed Davis is a guitarist I'd heard of from liner notes growing up. I had no idea who he was, but I, I, the name is familiar because he was on Beatles albums and Eric Clapton albums and Jackson Brown albums and so many others. Uh, here is one of the extremely well-known tracks he played on.
0: Whatever gets you through the
1: That is, of course, Whatever Gets You Through the Night by John Lennon uh, with Elton John uh, and Jesse Ed Davis on guitar. Tell the listeners okay. a little something about Jesse Ed.
2: Well, I was exactly like you, okay? So I used to, you know, I remember uh, the Atlantic Crossing album by Rod Stewart came out, I think, when I was in fifth grade or sixth grade or something like that. And I remember reading the liner notes, and I'd see reading this song written by Jesse Ed Davis, Jesse Ed Davis. I'd see that name everywhere, having no idea he was a Native American man. Um, I then, later on, would join Rod Stewart's band as my first big band. I would My first band really joined since high school. And um, I would learn Jesse Ed Davis guitar parts not realizing i was learning guitar parts by a native american man uh-huh. here while i'm on tour with Rod Stewart searching for native american musicians uh-huh. i'm playing some of his guitar parts not knowing he's a native american musician uh and then later on what you know we started getting into it we started to find out you know Brad Whitford from Aerosmith goes you know I loved Jesse Davis, and he's, you know, and I see he would dress like an Indian, but I thought he just dressed like that because he looked cool. I didn't realize he was an actual Native American, you know, which was great. And then Jackson Brown said, "Yeah, it was, you know, everybody dressed like an Indian then. It was the cool thing to do." So you didn't know if he was actually really one, right? And um, and now when I watch. The Bangladesh footage with Clapton and George Harrison. The the
1: 1971 concert for Bangladesh, yeah. the big benefit.
2: Um, and there he is right there. It's got Clapton on one side and it's got Jesse on his left. And, and, you know, Jesse was a big, big man. So you got this big, gigantic Native American man standing right next to Clapton and right next to George Harrison. And I'm thinking, how did I not... Look at that footage. My whole life, I go, "Who's that Indian on the stage there?" Yeah, you know what I mean, because it's like so obvious now that you know. Yes, well, which is my experience
1: of watching this film in general. It's like, wait, this stuff I've been looking at my entire life. Suddenly, now, wait, all of these Native Americans stepped out of the shadows that were, yeah. and they were just we were looking at them all the time.
2: Yeah, they were right there in plain sight. You know, it's funny because David Frick is our musicologist, right for um, for the movie.
1: He was, he was a Rolling Stone writer, right.
2: He's the yeah, senior editor at Rolling Stone yeah. or something. Like... He knew everything about this. It was like yeah. like it was like oh yeah. It was like, Why didn't anybody tell anybody? Yeah.
1: Our, our next track is a guy who might vaguely heard of because I know what I know about the blues. Uh, this is uh, Charlie Patton.
0: It is in my pony tell my black man.
1: That's Charlie Patton playing Pony Blues in 1929, which sounds pretty classic African American blues to me. But but uh, tell me about well, Charlie Patton and what well, you hear there. You know.
2: Well, what you just said is funny, right? Because it's true. We are all brought up to believe that that was the blues was a black art form. And it wasn't until we started to dig in there, you know, Billy Gibbons said to me one day, you know uh, Charlie Patton, if you look at him closely, he had some curly, wavy, blonde hair. And I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, and then we started to find those quotes, like, from Howlin' Wolf. And those people say, man, this Native this, this Native American guy taught me how to play guitar. And um, you started to realize that what was really going on was the birth of our nation, uh, a music being a byproduct of it, was all these cultures being mixed up. And that's what created the sound and the feeling and the, and the sort of what our country turned into, North America, Canada included. Well, and there's, there's a
1: great scene in the film that is, was, to me, musically revelatory, where you have these native women in the South doing, singing their native songs, which sound... And you, you suddenly, watching that, you suddenly get, oh, I get this connection to the blues.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah, and you know what? I mean, if I didn't know what the story was, I would just assume they were singing the blues. Yeah, it was a black, that black art form. But what we really, what we're really trying to say is that it isn't really just a black art form. It is a black art form, a native art form, and many other cultures that created that. Um, where so we're not saying the Indians did it and the black people didn't or whatever. It's it's all of it together, like the like a gumbo, like Ivan Neville says in the film. To me, I think of, of gumbo which is the quintessential New Orleans food. When I was growing up, gumbo was you put everything you had in a pot. All that stuff together makes this great meal. I'm part Native American, part African by way of Haiti, part French, part Italian. And that's kind of what New Orleans is. And it comes out so flavorful. Another thing
1: you know, when you're talking about the, the connections between native music and the blues is, is how the, the, the playing the guitar like a drum, which, which again, I never thought of. That's an interesting connection as well.
2: I never thought of that either, man. Catherine really, really found that stuff and pulled it out and, and it enlightened me as well because I never really realized that. Because you know, when, when they play, they didn't have the band, right? So the, the, the beat on the guitar would be your drum beat, and you'd have your, your four on the floor is like your, your powwow your powwow beat then you'd have your polyrhythms your African polyrhythms mixed in there you know what I mean all of a sudden now it's the sound of the blues isn't it
1: (laughs) yeah exactly So, Robbie Robertson, uh, who has been one of my favorite musicians since I was a teenager and first heard the band and bought every record they ever made, uh, talk about him. He he is He's a big figure in this
2: film. He's really the Holy Grail, isn't he? I mean, if you think about Robbie, Robbie Robertson has the muscle as a Native American man to do pretty much what he wants, and he has the, the cachet. And he was super important, because if he wouldn't have been in the Smithsonian exhibit, it just wouldn't have worked, because... You know, there's always these people that are gonna say like, "Well, I never heard of Jesse Ed Davis or Link Ray." Come on, you're, you're you're you guys are just fishing. But when you, you know, there's nobody's questioning Robbie Robertson. Right. They all, he, he's beyond a legend. You know, Taylor Hawkins from the Foo Fighters said, "You know, Robbie Robertson. Everybody wants to be. I want to play in the band." You know. Yeah. um th- So he is super important for this film because he really brought the anchor of credibility.
1: As you were making this documentary, did you think, okay, this is how I want? uh non-native audiences which will obviously be most of your audience to to see this and come away thinking about it this way and this is what I want uh, what what I want native people to to see in this film and feel about this film
2: once i turned 40 i said okay i've spent the first half of my life really being selfish and you know trying to be rich and trying to be famous and all this stuff which was really fun i loved it <laughs> i've had i've had some great times um but I wanted to go back to Indian country and I wanted to try to help because I'd see people beating their heads against the wall. And um, one of the things I realized was they didn't have a lot of role models. You know, there's not a lot of role models in in, in Indian country other than, you know, history, you know, Geronimo and... Yeah, sitting ball. Thing, yeah. yeah, and so I knew that these musicians would prove that, look, anything is possible. These guys did it, especially in times where you could get killed for it, right? And... Um, I wanted them to have some role models. I wanted us to have role models that were you know, represented, that were there were somebody you could be proud of. But then what happened was once Catherine started digging deeper into the history and even the Smithsonian, big time in the Smithsonian actually, I should say, uh, we started to realize that we were unearthing some history, American history that never been told, that never was known. We knew the black story with rock and Robert Johnson and little Richard. We knew the white story with rock and roll when, when Elvis popped and in the Beatles. But there was a red story we never knew about. And, and now it's out, and that's something I'm the most proud of that the film has really rewritten some wrongs and, and and we're not saying we're not saying we did this, you didn't do this." we're just saying these guys did this and it's, and it's important right and, and it, it should be recognized and it will be recognized from now on and if, that, if I die and that's what the film did, then I'm good with that.
1: Well, Stevie Salas, you really have. And congratulations for educating me and entertaining me and uh, I think a lot of all the people who see this film as well. So thank you. Thank you. Rumble, The Indians Who Rocked the World, is out now in New York City and opens around the country later this summer. Coming up... the particulars of a sex scene that'll get a movie an R rating instead of a PG-13. Yeah,
3: yeah, it's also the amount of uh, thrusts or humps that's in the scene. The number? And, yeah, it, huh. it could definitely huh. be the, the prolonged you know action of it.
1: How Howard Fridkin helps filmmakers and studios tweak their movies to get the ratings they want. That's next in Studio 360 PRI and WNYC. i've always been interested in the movie rating system pg-13 and r and all that that is partly i guess because i was in the micro generation that it really hit hard first there were no movie ratings until i turned 14 in 1968 And then suddenly, my friends and I were not allowed to buy tickets to cool movies like Easy Rider and The Wild Bunch. And ever since, I've wondered exactly what determines if a given movie is PG-13 rather than PG, or PG-13 rather than R, and so on. Documentary This Film Is Not Yet Rated a Decade Ago looked into this process and how ratings can make or break a movie. I got the call and they said NC 17. That's when my blood turned to ice water. Because the studio won't release your movie. I'm going to say the F word. It's the fascist system. At the time, Howard Fridkin was on the official jury of raters for the Motion Picture Association of America, the MPAA. Since then, he has turned that experience into a career. He professionally advises filmmakers on how to get the ratings they want. That is, mainly to turn R's into PG-13s. Because kids can go to PG's without an adult, which means a much larger potential audience. So what Fridkin typically does for his Hollywood clients is suggest exactly how much profanity or nudity or sex or violence has to be trimmed back. Howard Fridkin, welcome to Studio Three Hundred and Sixty. Thank you. How many people are on this board?
3: There, uh, in in screening a film, there's eight to thirteen.
1: Are there any written, c-
3: codified rules, or is it just it's what you you ten people think? There are a few guidelines, but every film is you know is uh, viewed and uh, analyzed right. uh, you know separately. As an example, you know a guideline would be uh, there's two f bombs would, would get you into an R.
0: Hey! Did you touch my drum set? Hey, knock
1: it off! You
3: fucking crazy man. You should be medicated.
1: Fuck you, Brennan!
3: Uh, you could have one in a 13 for sure.
1: And I'm Ron Burgundy. Go fuck yourself, San Diego.
3: But the, uh, the second one, you know, the F-bomb would have to be mentioned, you know, a, a distance away from each other. You know, a half hour after the first one said, or 20 minutes or something like
1: that. And what, what's, the, what's the logic of that?
3: <laughs> of the distance? that. Again, that's the uh, you know that's one of the uh, the guidelines that uh, just God you gave know.
1: you and you obey. <laughs> yes. So let's talk about each of the of the ratings. As you say, G. That's easy. That's just that's a cartoon. That's whatever
3: it is, and there's nothing in there, and we just. Obviously, actually, if you think about it, if you're viewing like a Roadrunner cartoon or or even like Bugs Bunny, a lot of violence, the violence in there, yeah, yeah. that's That's good. You know, as a kid, exactly, as a kid, we couldn't get enough of it, but now it, it would be PG. Interesting.
1: Really? So, so every time the coyote gets crushed by the roadrunner? Gets hit team, in the head or blown exactly, up or a PG.
3: <laughs> especially blown up. That could even maybe get it into a 13 depending on some parents. Yeah.
1: And then what, what pushes you from PG to
3: PG-13? Use of one F-bomb will get you into a 13. Uh-huh. Breast nudity.
4: Jack, I want you to draw me like one of your French girls. Wearing this. Wearing only this.
3: And it has to be quick, and it has to be almost maybe clinical uh, rather than uh, sexual. If it's purely right. sexual, then that's going to probably take it into an R with a discussion, depending how long it is. What yeah. what else gets you to R? Well, a drug, um, obviously, drugs will get you. Um, really? Yeah, into an R.
4: Wait a minute, man.
3: Let's smoke this fucking thing.
4: I re- I can't, man. I gotta. <sighs> <coughs> <coughs>
1: So, uh, NC-17s, how many NC-17s in a year do, do they give these days?
3: Actually, the, uh, when I was there, there weren't that many. Maybe maybe five that I know of. And, know. and what gets you there from R? That's like full full nudity and, you know, in a sexual situation, uh, d- depending on you know, what the act is and, and so forth. Right.
1: You
4: can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. For me, nymphomania was callousness.
1: Can violence get you to NC seventeen? Oh, absolutely. So ha, over time, I mean, you were there from what year to what year as a raider? From two thousand to uh, to thirteen. Uh, so that was enough time to see at least some potential change in mores. Did 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 the board get more sensitive or 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 more lenient in various ways over that? 13 years?
3: Probably they, they, they allowed a little bit more in uh, in the violent content in the 13 that seemed to have uh, changed with these superhero pictures, uh, G.I. Joe and um, Iron Man. I am Iron Man. Really? So more violence was allowed? Yeah, because it was characterized as cartoon yeah. violence.
1: I have a couple of questions about that. One is like these are these are one hundred and fifty million dollars movies.
3: Of course, we got to give them a PJ thirteen. Was that part of it? <laughs> Without trying to get fired from the board, if I was still on it. Yes, you're not. So go uh, be honest. <laughs> there might be a uh, a situation where you know a big tent pulled picture right. you know, might right. be allowed to uh, you know flex their muscles a little bit more. Right.
1: It, now, uh, how about sex versus – you say violence has become more accepted over in this century uh, and rated more leniently. Sex, same, different?
3: No, nudity is much more uh, a concern. And, for and, some reason, the parents really – you know, they, they really focus on that.
1: Now, what about heterosexual sex versus uh, homosexual sex? Is yeah,
3: that, that's a slippery slope, too. So, so to speak. Um, you know, yeah, that that still might be a little, you know, um, you know a little uh, stigma there.
1: But – but two women making out, or two guys making out. Let's say, clothes. Right. This is
3: a one-shot thing we got going on here.
2: It's nobody's business but ours.
3: You know, I ain't queer. Me neither.
1: That's gonna be that's 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 a PG thirteen.
3: Yeah. Uh, again, depending on if it's just simply kissing. It'll probably maintain it at 13.
1: And, and how about, but, but a man and a woman doing that, that's not even going to be no, PG. Oh, that's, yeah, right? that, that's, yeah, that's, that would probably be PG.
4: Since the invention of the kiss, there have been five kisses that were rated the most passionate, the most pure. This one left them all behind.
3: Again, depending, you know, if there's tongues going wild or <laughs> right. wagging and all that, you know, right. And, right. yeah, right. Yeah, so. What a weird know. job you had. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the reason this is
1: a thing at all at this point right is that by and large a movie that is rated PG13 has the chance of ha- selling a lot more tickets than a movie that's
3: rated R right that's that's the yeah key yeah thing, that's right? the rule of thumb yeah exactly and that's why I kind of like formed my uh, my company. So talk about that. So so you you've been
1: a raider, and and like a like a guy who's worked for a senator. Then you go and be a lobbyist, or I guess that's the equivalent, <laughs> right? And and so so you have this firm, and and producers and and studios come to you and say, so Howard, tell us tell us what to do.
3: They usually holler help, yeah. But how
1: does Uh, that work?
3: Well, first, I ask them what rating they're after. If they're after an R, then, you know, I tell them, hey, save your money and go put what you want into it because most likely you'll get your R. Interesting if they want a 13 then yeah then I have to go ahead and make a um, you know an elaborate report I am I'm fascinated by everything about this so I'm going to slow <laughs> it down so so
1: you they, they'll come to you with a script and you'll say oh take you know if, if you if you just want an hour don't even worry but we're talking about pg 13 fine take out this put this on page 12 and then presumably if they think you're good and they still employ you they Uh, show you the film as soon as they have a rough cut
3: yeah yeah they'll do that sometimes it's a lot different on paper versus film because depending on how they're going to shoot that bullet impacting the uh, you know the person you know might just say on paper you know bullet strikes Charles or whoever the character is but in the film you see it you know (laughs) exploding in the chest and the blood's flying everywhere and I tell him, you know, I I warned you.
1: And so then you say, well, that's, you know, that's going to get you the way that blood splatter goes onto the lens or whatever is going to get you an R. You you can't do that if you expect not to get an R.
3: Right. And there's a couple of other, uh, I don't want to say tricks, but there's a couple of other, you know, rather than seeing the person getting shot and the blood splattering at that point, you could just have the impact and then show the wall with the blood. You know, these little things—you know—tone it down. You could raise the music so you don't hear the, uh, you know, the gunshot. <laughs> You know, there's a whole bunch of different things right. that that can be done depending on the scene. But so
1: we want to, we're going to play, I want to play some clips uh, uh, that have examples of scenes that might have been determining factors in, in those movies' ratings. Um, okay. and, and, and I w- want to have you be our color commentator, I guess, Ex- expert commentator <laughs> on these. Uh, we're going to take a look and listen uh, to a scene from Boogie Nights, the great 1997 movie about the porn movie world. The MPAA uh, originally gave... Uh, Boogie Nights, an NC-17 rating, but after a few shrewd edits, the filmmakers negotiated it down to an R. The scene we're about to play is from the final R-rated version, uh, after it had been modified to get the uh, correct rating. Bill Macy's character, uh, who's part of the porn world, uh, walks in on his wife, played by Nina Hartley, having sex with somebody else. What the fuck are you doing?
0: What the fuck does it look like I'm doing? Can you close the door? Don't stop, big Dad.
1: So the director of, of Boogie Nights, the great Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, right, said, that, right. said that the MPAA problem, the rating board problem, was that this—it was the this speaking that because they reshot it, he reshot it where they pause from actually having active humping, and and she speaks, and then they return, that's what allowed him to get an R instead of an NC-17. Does that sound plausible?
3: Yeah, yeah, it's also the amount of uh, thrusts or humps that's in the scene. The number? Yeah, it it can definitely be the the prolonged, you know, action of it. Really,
1: like, so three would get you an R, but ten, no no way?
3: Yeah, something like that. And plus, the way it was framed, I believe, her breasts were not completely shown. They were just kind of like right at the, uh, I guess, the nipple margin or something. Uh So that might have helped uh, as well. Now,
1: the King's speech... Yeah, I wasn't even aware that that's an R-rated picture because I'm not a teenager and my kids are grown. <laughs> but uh, and I don't think of it as a, a film that would have been R-rated, but it was. Uh, yeah. And maybe because of this scene, uh, which is which is the moving session, a moving session with his speech therapist, where King George discovers that he doesn't stammer when he curses.
2: Do you know the F word.
3: Fornication. Alberti. Oh, <laughs> Fuck.
1: Fuck, 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 fucking fuck, fuck, fucking bugger. Bugger, bugger, Bugger! Bugger! <laughs> terrific. Which was a terrific. great scene. It was Colin, terrific. Uh, Colin Firth uh, playing uh, George VI and, six, and, yeah, and Jeffrey Rush great, as great. the speech therapist. So they just decided we love that scene and probably... Uh, fifteen-year-olds aren't going to go this to this without their parents anyway. So fuck it.
3: Again, you can watch that film and just say, okay. So he says, you know, fuck eight ten times, whatever <laughs> yes. it is. But 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 it's such a great film yes. and such a great you know meaningful you know performances. And you're not using it sexually. It's just to help this you know this 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 guy to come to uh, terms with his uh, stuttering. But if I go in there rating the film based on that, then, you know, that's not, you know, that.
1: A parent would be surprised uh, if if you made that a PG-13 and they went and saw that scene. Yeah,
3: they're going to be, yeah, they're going to be taken back.
1: So uh, now that any 12-year-old can watch anything he or she wants anytime on her (laughs) computer or probably television, uh, like, what's the point? Isn't the MPAA and the ratings at this point getting, starting to be a little...
3: Quaint? No, that's that's the whole key, is that I don't care what's happening in your house. I don't care what's happening down the street. Right. I'm rating this film according to how I think the normal parent's going to view this. And I'm just giving you the information as to what this contains.
1: So in, in your lifetime, in my lifetime, you think this will continue because parents will still want to know – And they still have a basic understanding of, okay, this is what PG-13 means, this is what R means, this is what NC-17 means, and I want to know that for my kids' sake.
3: It's better than, you know, censorship, which, you know, obviously would would take over unless something changes. Howard Fridkin, thank you very much. This has really been a a completely
1: illuminating (laughs) delight for me.
3: Well, I'm glad. No, I had a great time.
1: Howard Fritkin is the founder of Film Rating Advisors. Coming up, best use of flute in a rock band since Jethro Tull. Tank and the Bangas, live here in our studio. That is still ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.
0: 360.
1: The New Orleans band Tank and the Bangas first appeared on my radar earlier this year when they won NPR's big annual Tiny Desk Contest. In case you don't know, the Tiny Desk Concert is a video series where bands perform at a desk in the NPR newsroom. The contest is a talent search where bands submit videos of themselves playing an original song around a desk that is not at NPR. When Tank and the Bangas won, they beat out 6,000 other entrants. Tank is the nickname of their founder and leader, Tariona Ball, and in the middle of their big summer tour, she and her crew have invaded our studio. Tank, Bangas, welcome to Studio
4: 360. <laughs> Thanks.
1: Before you play, and before we talk more, congratulations uh, on winning this big, tiny desk concert Woo! contest at NPR.
4: You beat out 6,000 bands? Yes, I did alone. Of
1: course! Oh my God! <laughs> a, oh my God. <laughs> tank with no tank with
4: yes. no bangers! Oh my God! Um,
1: and and how did you? Why did you? What made you decide to enter this?
4: I didn't decide at all. Actually, none of us decided. It was our manager, you know, who happens to be my uh, my best friend as well. Really? She pushed it constantly. She pushed it so much that she had to literally set it up like it was a gig.
1: Really? Yeah. She Well, she's earned her manager. Oh stripes. yeah!
4: It changed. It changed our lives. Yeah, really. So happy for it.
1: Um, and the song you entered, uh, it's called "Quick." Yes. And that's the song you're going to play for us first today? Yes.
4: All right. Make your money, girl. Make your money, girl. You better make that money. Make that money, quick, quick, quick. quick. Make your money, quick, 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 oh, real slick. Quick, quick, girl, I'm jilled up, weaved up, everything real slick. You take your house, nobody know but we got Just knew the block just got high We see a gotta be beach, to be quick got to get, 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 get And I'm telling what I'm gonna do today. Cause man, I strode up in a room Liquor and colors I met somebody's groom, that was Curious and plaster I Took him by the hand, I slipped a... Mickey in his pocket okay. Next thing that I know, he was reaching for his wallet I'm on the road driving. And on that scissor, I was leaning and rocking. Remember Michael, said it. Like serving. That face with them sirens, cause I, I see him looking. a mile away Uh-oh. And like my body, you not see my face. And with them girls, I gotta pay the pay. My back is aching, my bra too tight. My booty is from left to right. next I know Got my car has started to show. Plus, they get spread out from the place. I should get out. Girl, now i got to make a decision. So I have a short, but then I get a flashback. A recap of the night before life. Hi. Don't you want to ride? Don't you want to fly? Don't you want to pass out? This is just when like I last, last way, week when, when I, I showed up in her room. It was full of liquor flickering colors. I was stumbling from my car. Notice yes. I was plastered. Followed me right. Slept asleep in my car. Next thing that I know, I was leaning. He was driving, so I gotta make a quick decision. Gotta get out of my feelings. See that-
1: As Tank and the bangas playing quick. God I love that and, and you guys. Uh so <laughs> Tank, introduce all these other bangas.
4: Oh, that would be awesome to do. Um Joshua Johnson right there is on the drums. That's the um MD over there. That's Norman Spence on the Moog. That is a Jonathan Johnson on the bass. Myrba Kett on the keys, Albert Allenbeck on the saxophone, Angelica Jelly Joseph on the backs, Welcome. and Terry I'll take Ball on the lead.
1: Ooh. <laughs> um, uh, why don't you, now that we've talked, now that you've played, come over here, sit. We'll talk to a cross section of the bangers. Beautiful. Um, so this NPR uh, performance got a million and a half views, which must have looked to the rest of the world like you're an overnight success. But you guys have been playing for. Six years together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have. But this thing must have been like a, like a, kind of hitting the jackpot a little
4: bit. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was for um six thousand people that 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 tried out for it for uh, them to pick us, you know, yeah. New Orleans group, bottom of the map. For them to pick you alone, <laughs> amazing, just amazing. We're just glad well, to witness, know. aren't we? God's good. I like to I like to see this little <laughs> this little
1: tension. Have there been actual consequences like bigger venues, more X, Y, or Z? I mean, has it just beyond the thing of oh, more people know you?
4: Yes. Now all the the venues are sold out. You know, uh, we're going places that we've never been before, and that's one of the most amazing parts. That people don't just say, oh, hey, you know, one member. They know everybody member, uh, everyone names. They're screaming everyone's name. Wow. It is just so cool. That's lovely we
1: always on this show love hearing uh, musicians talk about the other musicians and musics that have inspired them and shaped them so we're going to play some songs that each have been influential to each of you three anyway Uh, Albert uh, you pick this one
3: so this is Jethro Tull Jethro Tull Fat Man
1: Batman.
3: Yeah, my mom had the CD of Jethro Tull,
2: Greatest Hits, and uh, I didn't play flute until like three years ago, but I I was always listening to it, so it's kind of weird how it caught up to me. And like, this is the first time there's like flute, and it sounded like a medieval festival or something. I just love it.
1: No, I mean, (laughs) I I was 17 when it came out, and I thought the same thing then.
2: Yeah, I like the flute, and I like, they had a little tambourine or lute, or is there something in there, like a little festival? It feels like a festival, and I really liked it.
3: Aha,
1: uh-huh, So re- it was like your own little private Renaissance Fair. Yeah, You're I was adding. like, I was like, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah gives it gives you a lot
3: of gives you a lot of like sounds.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Meryl, uh, yes. th- you picked a song. Uh, yes. We're gonna play it as well. <clears throat> Ooh. My
0: eyes are oh, Erica. Cause I eat a lot
1: of vegetables. So do you remember hearing this song for the first time?
4: Yeah, that was like the time where I first started really like getting into neo-soul, like Erica Badu and, you know, all the different Jill Scott's and uh-huh. all those people, whatever. I was in school for jazz, so uh-huh. that's all I pretty much listened to. I used to be like, who wants to listen to pop music? Oh, so you don't look don't down like on that. don't
1: no. <laughs> uh, We have another song to play. This is yours, Tank.
2: I don't want to go through
4: your phone.
1: <laughs> Some things are better left unknown. That's PJ Morton, right? Uh-oh,
4: all right, PJ. I'm going to keep living in my day Keep living in my day and dream. Elba looking at me crazy. I'm sorry if I'm not at the Medieval Fair. No, it's good. It looks good. <laughs> but... it
1: looks good. <laughs> I'm glad
4: you picked ah, this. the Medieval <laughs> Fair. She's coming in.
1: But uh PJ Morton is a fellow New Orleansian, yeah?
4: Yeah, he's a New Nor- wow, Orleans <laughs> he's, he's Nor- Orleanin, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's from
3: there.
4: <laughs> yeah, he's from there. He is awesome and uh he um influenced a lot of my uh, early listenings and stuff. I love a lot of different music. Um but as far as a New Orleans artist, sometimes it's, even though we have a lot of music um there to pick PJ is, is a really special one. He, he's
1: also he plays with the uh, Maroon band Maroon 5. As he well. does. Huh? And that song was called Go Through Your Phone. I looked at your uh, tour chart. I mean you've been like really since the spring, since early spring, like six gigs a week straight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of insane?
4: Mm-hmm. It's very insane. Yeah. We miss flights. Yeah, yeah do you? We we can miss some flights and we run. We get a lot of exercise in the airport. We run. Especially JFK, long
1: ass airport. I mean, I mean airport. <laughs> <laughs> You can say long ass. We 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 can accept. It. The FCC will allow us to do that and more, I think. Um uh so world domination I guess is your is your goal right Oh my gosh
4: the pinky the right <laughs> I mean, honestly, just to influence and inspire people the same way that we've been influenced and inspired to even just live out this, this thing, period. The fact that you can live your life off of what is already inside of you. you a house that, you know, God made. And um, if you don't follow your dream, you will literally work for somebody that followed theirs. So you got to go full force in this thing.
1: Nicely said. Tank, bangers, thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you, Kurt. Um, uh, This was great. Will you play one more song? Play us out, that is.
4: (laughs) All right, let's do it. This song is Boxes and Squares.
0: Here we go.
4: I would have been the fish. I would have been the meat. I would have been the eggs. I would have been the greens. I would have been the milk and the fruit. I tried to be a vegetable only once. And even soup. You know I pay the big. You know, you know I could have been I would have I should have I should have I would have been I could have Oh, man You know, you know I could have been I would have been I would have been I should have been I should have been I could have been I would have been Man, I would have been real I heard they got some honesty on sale Maybe we can buy her too But I, I heard your mama showed your buttons until you were 22 And your sister washed your laundry out. I think it's time I did laundry too Meats, beans, beans, beans greens, greens, peas, beans, peas milk, beans, fruit, fruit, eggs, fruit, eggs, you, you You. <laughs> I say no, you are like a A what? You are like a loop You are like a You are like a You are like a loop. you like a loop, loop, loop you like a loop 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 feel like I'm going round and round with you yep. I feel like the O's inside my suit <laughs> But don't no, no woman did full off of eating no juicy I got to questions So many questions
1: can check out Tank and the Bangas on their tour this summer and fall. We link to that schedule at studio360.org, where you can also watch a video of yet another song they performed live right here in our studio. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our executive producer is
2: Jocelyn Gonzalez.
1: Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is Louis Mitchell. Our producers are
3: Daniel Guimet Sam Kim,
4: Skylar Swenson,
3: Tommy Bazarian,
4: Zoe Saunders,
1: and our intern is Claude Glut. I'm Kurt Anderson, and thank you very much for listening. The Great White Whale. He rises!
3: It's been the scene as the story of, of a fascist, the story of a totalitarian communist, and most recently, the story of a terrorist.
1: I'm Kurt Anderson. Join me as we chase Moby Dick, our next American icon in Studio 360.